0: Why do we have Alana Stein here? Um, well, let me tell you about her, and then I'll tell you why she's here. Because we can. Because we can, that's, yes. But we can have a lot of other people. But why Alana? Alana Steinhain is going on, you have to correct me if this is wrong, is going on her fifth year at Lincoln Square Synagogue? I'm
1: finishing
0: my fifth year. Finishing her fifth year at Lincoln Square Synagogue. Has anybody in the room been to Lincoln Square Synagogue? The rabbi, that's good. Lincoln Where is Lincoln Square? 16th in Amsterdam. And what? And what? Tell us a little about the show. It's a modern Orthodox. What's the?
1: It's a modern Orthodox congregation. Uh, has a nice degree of diversity. Everything from youth department programs to cultural programs to social action programs to education programs. We are a very. Um, Shall we say busy place. Very right. You just opened
0: place. up was it a new building or you re- new building. It was like a fifty million dollar building. Fifty
1: three million
0: dollars. Fifty three million dollar new building. So if you're in New York, go check it out. Plus, as you know the New York Times wrote a big article about their opening and spent a lot of time talking about their big, massive Kiddush?
1: Wall
0: Street
1: Journal. Wall Street Journal Journal wrote about the Kiddush. Okay.
0: So the architecture is interesting, lots of food, great things. So finishing up her fifth year at Lincoln Square Synagogue while functioning as the community scholar, sermonizing, counseling, building relationships, teaching, and collaborating in programs with volunteers, she also lectures to Jewish communities throughout the country and has served on the Wexner Institute faculty. Are you still involved with Wexner? Okay. Several years ago, she was named one of the Jewish Week's first 36 under 36. Does that still apply? Or I shouldn't <laughs> ask that question. It does.
1: Okay. I'm going on 32 this Saturday.
0: Okay. Alana is currently writing her doctoral dissertation in religion at Columbia University, where her husband serves as the rabbi of Columbia University, uh, Rabbi Hain. Um Her topic is: Is this still your topic? Talmudic loopholes and the role of in- and the role of intention. Is that yes. still your That's still your <laughs> As part of her academic studies, she has been privileged to study with Professor David Weiss-Halivni, Susan Lastone, and Barry Wimpheimer. She participated in a two-year fellowship in Jewish Law and Legal Theory and takes part in academic conferences in Talmud and Rabbinics. This year, well, I don't know if it's this year. Are you teaching at uh, NYU this year? I am. This year, she's teaching a course in Principles of Jewish Law at New York University's Wagner School. She's here because uh, my good friend Charlie Savinor says whenever she's teaching... No matter what shul he has on the schedule, he goes out of his way to hear her speak. And he said, if we can ever get her to come speak for CSP, we should. Um, shall have it clue you out, clue her out this weekend, because they're starting a Jewish studies institute for adults. So we're the fortunate beneficiary of that visit. And we're now going to focus on passive around the world. Thank you all for coming. Oh, cell phones on back or off, please. I'm going
1: to grab a sheet.
0: I mean, I know my material,
1: but not by heart. So, hi, everybody. I'm a little shorter than Ari. Um, First of all, I want to thank Ari for inviting me. Um, We took, you know, several emails to get this to happen, and I want to thank Rabbi Charles Savinor, who's a member of my synagogue, who actually made the connection, And I also want to thank Marianne, who for the last several days has been trying to help me figure out what activities my son and my husband should do while we're here, which aquarium, can we go here, can we go there, uh, before or during the speech. So, I have to say that in terms of customs at the Seder, our custom at the Seder, one of my favorite customs at the Seder, my husband and I lead Seder every year at a university. First it was New York University, And for the last four years, it's been at Columbia University. And one of my favorite customs at the Seder is that when we get to the four children, I ask everybody to stand in different corners of the room depending on what child they feel like. So if you feel most like the wise child, you're in that corner. If you feel most like the wicked child, you're in that corner, et cetera, et cetera. But the most fun part is the people who stand in between the different corners. And they try to explain why they feel like a little bit of both. So when it comes to customs of the Seder, there's really so much and such richness that different people bring to their Seder. Is there anybody here who has sort of a really wacky Seder custom that they would be willing to share? Yes?
2: Ping pong balls for hail.
1: Ping pong balls for hail, that's pretty good. That definitely starts the juices flowing. Anyone else? Passover Seder night.
2: I was at a Seder, Rabbi Cohn's house. Long table, and down the middle of the table, they had the progression with little um, figurines and things of the story, and it was a lot of fun when we got to the plagues. There were frogs all over the place. Just
1: don't spill. That's great. Any
2: Anyone else? Yes. Um, I was at a Seder uh, one time where the person who was leading it um, chocolate chips to anybody who asks a question. It doesn't matter what kind of a question it is. So there are a lot of questions being asked. Because <laughs> she couldn't find her chocolate chips, so she broke up a
1: chocolate bar. And chocolate. Perfect. Perfect. Love it. Well, so I have to say that the time when um, I think, I, could, I can't say that I experienced this most personally, but my husband experienced this most personally. The time when he had the hardest time explaining customs to someone at the Seder is when their family had um, Secretary, former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton, at the Seder, and my my father-in-law is a rabbi, and he was very involved when she was running for Senate, and she came for, um, of course, Secret Service came to visit on the afternoon before Passover started or actually it was in the morning before Passover started and they're looking around and they're trying to figure out you know, where is, and at that point she was the senator, where is the senator, I think they often called her the former first lady, where is the former first lady going to be able to make a private phone call? And of course my mother-in-law would say things like you know, on our regal phone line in room X, where is the former first lady going to be able to you know, find a lavatory. Well, you know, our royal uh, bathroom upstairs—not a problem. And all was going okay until the Secret Service saw the Hamid's burning pit in the backyard. And one of the one of the Secret Service members said, "Excuse me, wh- what is this? We can't have a dangerous fire where the first former first lady is going to be." And another Secret Service agent put his hand on him and said, "Oh, don't worry. That's just Hanukkah." <laughs> so new, new uh, Customs in our home Trying to explain those customs I think can be very interesting The way I want to form this conversation And I feel too far from you We knew this was going to happen Okay. The way I want to form this conversation Is I want to divide it into three parts Which is Customs at the Seder That are based on Trying to augment Or trying to Add to the richness of the text of the Haggadah, of the Seder itself. That's one part. The second, things, traditions that reflect a certain time in history or a certain place where certain uh, traditions arose. And the third are readings that I think are actually crucial and important to bring with us to the Seder. So that said, I just want to introduce a little information about the Passover Seder, which is the Passover Seder at a certain point did not exist. Like any tradition, did not exist. In biblical times, and even in temple times, we're not quite sure that there were four children asking questions. We're not quite sure that there was anyone singing the Manishtana, why is tonight different from any other night? We're not quite sure people were drinking any wine at the Seder. right? We just don't really know what was going on in temple times. And it seems to be the case that after the temple fell, the second temple in the year 70, common era, and not only that, but the hiccup following that of the Bar Kochba revolts, which is basically when the Jews were trying to reassert their autonomy after the temple had been destroyed, they realized, oh my goodness, we're not getting a temple back. So the Paschal Lamb offering, which was the centerpiece of Passover night, It was essentially eating the Paschal lamb offering the way they ate it in Egypt the night before they left. That was gone. They needed some meaning. They needed to find something to say. They weren't just going to sit around the table looking at the empty plate. So what did they do? Some say that they built upon some of the Haggadah that already existed maybe a few verses here and there. Others say they literally invented the whole thing right then and there. But either way, what's unbelievable about the Haggadah, what's unbelievable about that book that we hold on the Seder night is that it's not a fixed text. By definition, it came out of the cistern of history. It came out of experiences of Jews who needed to change their Seder night experience to reflect their reality. And that has been the case ever since. So if you look, there's actually a Haggadah out there, if anyone can find it, it's out of print, but if anyone can find it, there's a Haggadah out there that's color-coded by when each part of the Haggadah was added. So you find things that were added in the 2nd century, you find things that were added in the ninth century, you find things, you know, one little goat, one little goat, Haggad 16th century, okay, pretty late. You find by the color-coding, what you can see is that the Haggadah is, by definition, the Jewish story over the ages and that's why to me talking about customs around the world it's not just a matter of interest sociological anthropological inquiry oh isn't that cute that they do this, isn't that cute that they do that it's the definition of what the Haggadah and the Seder night becomes because this night is about Jewish identity for each and every person sitting here not from a fixed text but literally from lived life And what do we bring to that text that we happen to be lucky enough to have in front of us now? Where, for many, many years, and in many places, Jews still don't necessarily have it in front of them, and they do things differently. So with that introduction, let's take a look. I like to give you things in a certain order, and then I like to change the order, because I think about things through the last minute. So I'm going to skip with you. I told you that we would be looking at three different types of customs. One custom, one type of custom, which the idea of which is to augment the text as it already is, okay? The second type of cup, custom, to add our unique geographical or chronological flavor of where our society, and our society could be Ethiopia in the 19th century, our society could be Germany in the 12th century, our society could be Turkey in the 16th century, right? What we are adding that reflects us, our unique. Um, community. And the third is just things that I think would be amazing to maybe add as customs at your own Seder. Readings that I think are are pretty incredible. Okay, So let's look at some of the things that actually augment um, the Seder itself. Some of the things that augment the Seder itself. We're going to go to page. Let's decide what we want to do first. We are going to go, skip with me, we're, we're going to really skip, we're going to really skip. Skip with me if you would to page... Page five. Okay. Anybody here make charoset? Mm-hmm. Haroset being sort of sweet, apple, nutmeg mm-hmm. kind of things. So if you take a look at 11a, Gibraltar. In Gibraltar, did Jews really put bricks in their charoset? Oh my, because charoset is supposed to be commemorative of the bricks that the Jewish people had to build when they were going to make the pyramids. The traditional Seder food of charoset is supposed to represent the mixture that the Israelite slaves made while forming cement. The actual ingredients in charoset vary from Jewish culture to Jewish culture, including apples, nuts, cinnamon, Raisins, figs, dates, sesame seeds Often these things are about what's indigenous to where you live right? Chestnuts, coconut, wine Like there isn't enough already that night Rabbi Sadia Gaon, a Baghdadi rabbi from the 900s Says that the only mandatory ingredient in the charoset is walnuts Because it's a pun Charoset is similar to the ancient word for walnut The short answer though is About whether Jews of Gibraltar put brick in their charoset The Jews of Gibraltar, a territory on the southern tip of Spain, where, by the way, people speak English, feel free to go and enjoy the seder. Have a custom of grinding a minute amount of actual brick into the mortar of their haroset. It gives a whole new meaning to the phrase "grinding your teeth," right? So, what are they doing there? They're not doing anything that's specifically Gibraltarian, right? This is not very UK because Gibraltar is a colony of the UK, right? This is not very UK. This is. They want to augment, they, they really want people to feel a sense of the Seder night, right? It's gorgeous, it's fascinating, it's adorable. Could you imagine if you say to a little kid at the Seder, you know, there's real brick grounded up in here. They'll get a real sense. And forget about the, the children, even the adults. It, it's a very sobering experience that you're literally going to be eating a piece of brick, right? Not that you're, you know, gnashing your teeth on it, but you know that it's in there and that makes a difference. I'll tell you another one. Has anyone heard of any other interesting customs that are sort of around the world? Different people do? I'll give you another one. It's not on the sheet. Ethiopian Jews. You know what Ethiopian Jews do? And I can't swear that every Ethiopian Jew you ever meet does this. They put a cup of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's cup goes on the middle of the table from the beginning of the Seder. And as the Seder goes on they pour some out. Why? What's the meaning? So you say plagues like what we do with We take our finger and we take out because we feel bad You know, why should we enjoy While somebody else has suffered But keep in mind, this is Pharaoh's cup So Pharaoh's losing as time goes on Right? So I'll tell you an interesting thing Talk about augmenting Ethiopians didn't come up with this out of nowhere Actually, the Talmud, Yerushalmi The Palestinian Talmud The Talmud Yerushalmi was not really written in Jerusalem in the Middle Ages. They used to call things by the capital city of where they were produced, right? So the Jerusalem Talmud was not really produced in Jerusalem, okay? But the Jerusalem Talmud says, actually, one of the reasons for the four cups is because if you look in the Joseph story, you find the word cup said regarding Pharaoh four times, Pharaoh's cup. That's really what we're doing at the Seder At the Seder we're drinking out of Pharaoh's cup Because we are royalty So the Ethiopians symbolize that by Pouring a little bit out So what they're doing there again They're not doing something that's uniquely Ethiopian They're giving their what we might call drosh Their homiletics On what the Seder means I'll show you another one In number 10 And I apologize that I don't have it in English um, by By a show of hands Read in Hebrew and translate Or just translate Anyone vote for a Read in Hebrew and Translate? It's always, it's always good to get at least one vote. Thank you, Tamar. I'm gonna, th- that sounded unanimous. That sounded unanimous to me. Okay, the custom in Tunisia, okay? Recall that we start the Seder and I'm not going to make you sing it, right? The Kadesh Urchat. I'm not going to make you sing it, but sing it in your heads, right? Recall at the Seder, we're going to break a matzah. We're going to break a piece of matzah and save some of it for later for the afikomen and we're going to eat some of it at the actual meal now, right? When we do the motzi matzah, when we actually start the meal. So in Tunisia, here's what people say when you break that middle matzah. Anybody know, what's the symbolism of breaking the middle matzah, by the way? You won't be wrong because... There's no, we don't really totally know That's the beauty That's the beauty of this We don't invest it with some symbolism What do you think? What's your name? Ria why, why Ria? Right, so you're saying Well, the fact is You're just splitting it Really because you're putting away A part of it for later Fine, great Anything else? You're putting away a part of it for later Some people say that it's also symbolic Of people who are impoverished you don't know where your next meal is coming from, so keep half for later because you don't know. But I'll tell you what the Tunisian minhag custom is. When they break it, why make such a ceremony out of breaking it? When they break it, they say the following, Kach kara Hashem et al asar This is how God split the sea into 12 pieces. Now they don't split it into 12 pieces. That would be a real feat. You'd have matzah everywhere. But they, that's what they imbue the symbolism of God splitting the sea already when you break the matzah. Now that's a very optimistic view. right? That's a very optimistic view. Already at the beginning of the Seder while we're still slaves, so to speak, you're already talking about God splitting the sea. You're, you're already out of Egypt. They're already in their minds. They're already out of Egypt. Pretty, pretty beautiful. One that gets a lot of press, actually, is the scallion custom. Yeah. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Anybody ever do it? Yeah. Okay, tell me. What, what do you do? What's your name?
2: Well, Gail. But I Gail. It Persian Jews. That's
1: okay. What? It starts with Afghani Jews. Okay. So it's, it could spread. But yeah, what, what is the custom? When Yes. Talk about. Strange. What is that? You hit each other with scallions when you sing dienum? You hit each other. Lightly, lightly, lightly. Right? I can imagine my son doesn't have a sibling yet, but at some point, God willing, I, I can imagine what he might hide in a scallion. Uh-huh. Give a hey, how come that shouldn't be that hard? And then you find something in the scallion that he's hidden, you know? So what, what, what's the point of that? I mean, it's cute gets the kids to ask questions that's another thing everybody always says about the seder why do we do this so that the children will ask ask questions we by the way i I do this in my house all the time anytime i do something strange and my husband wonders why i did it you know or something forgetful i say well so the children will ask Is it's very useful so the children will ask and this was before we had kids like we don't have children i said other people's children it's fine so wait what's the what's the meaning behind it yes what's your name
2: Phyllis. Hi, Phyllis. Uh, my brother had this and uh, a savior in Israel and I thought they said it was for the Egyptians beating the Hebrews.
1: Ah, so the very clear symbolism when you look at it is beating someone, whipping someone. Yeah. Well, I'll show you something which I think is so magnificent. Turn the page for a second to the back, page six, the top of page six. And that's all I have to show you. That's the truth is Anyone recall this verse from the Bible, from the Pentateuch, from the Chumash? We remember the fish which we were wont to eat in Egypt for naught, meaning we paid nothing except servitude. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions. Maybe we could say the green onions. The onions and the garlic. What is that verse? Who said that verse? The Israelites said it too. Moses what are, we, what are we doing out here this is not good we don't like where we are we remember we used to eat scallions for free in Egypt and here we're, we're eating I don't know manna it's disgusting right where's the tea room it's horrible right so specifically when we sing the song Dayenu which means it is enough for us that's When you take out the scallions We're not hitting each other because the Egyptians Hit us, we're hitting each other and saying Why did you complain about those scallions Don't you realize that every Single part of this process Would have been enough, it would have been enough had God Taken us out, it would have been enough had God brought us to the sea It would have been enough had God even left us In the wilderness, you're so ungrateful So we're hitting ourselves So to speak, it's a beautiful Custom, it's a beautiful custom It really brings it to light Okay there's more. Polish Jews put some water on the floor. So that you're, I mean, I'm Polish, I, did, I should tell you. But we never did this. But officially, Polish Jews put water on the floor, which is also to represent uh, you know going through the sea, crossing the sea, exactly. Pretty beautiful. But now I want to skip to a different kind of custom, which is not a custom that is a drash, a homily, on the Haggadah, but a custom that's more of a drash, a homily, on the culture in which someone was living, okay? So the first thing I need to show you, okay? I need to show you, before we even talk about uh, content, I need to show you form. Look at page two, okay? And by the way, this is a long source sheet. I seldom do a source sheet that's more than two sides of a page. But I want you to take this home and I want you to take this to your Seder. That's the point, take it to your Seder. Show this to people. I, at my Seder every year, I bring a picture of Charlton Heston, to my center right here, there's HUC um, in, in, uh, in New York did a fabulous uh, art exhibit several years ago that was sort of biblical art modeled after movies made about the Bible. So I have a Charlton Heston like this which is gorgeous as Moses and I bring it in postcard form to the Seder every year it is laminated okay nothing is going to happen to that poster so I think showing pictures and I also show pictures of Haggadot Haggadahs from all around the world every year so I want you to see number two okay page two excuse me do you see this Haggadah okay this is a Haggadah from 1874 from Pune, India okay You cannot see it well enough. But if you can try to look at what's on their feet. Do you notice anything weird about their feet? There's nothing on their feet. That's what's interesting about their feet. There's nothing on their feet. So let's even imagine, okay, Let's even imagine that when they see themselves in the Passover story, they see themselves as Indians, right? In other words, men, people who live in India. They do not see themselves as the Jews of ancient Egypt. And that's really important. When you imagine the Jews leaving Egypt, do you imagine them wearing Abercrombie and Fitch? Do you imagine them wearing J. Crew? Do you imagine them as you know something from a Cleopatra movie or novel? How do you imagine them, right? They imagine them as themselves, okay? They imagine them as themselves. I want to show you one more. Take a look on page three. This is the oldest surviving Ashkenazic Haggadah. That is the oldest surviving haggadah from Jews of Germanic lands, okay? What is going on in this Haggadah? Oh, well,
0: this is a test for all of you who came to the <laughs> yeah. month scholar. Oh,
1: okay, Mark great. Michael this Epstein. is a test.
0: Yes, Mark Michael Epstein. We spent right. like 30 days talking about this. I it's, it's, the bird's head. Head.
1: it's the bird's head. I've got it. Why? Why does this guy have a
2: bird's head? Well, according to some people, it's because we don't depict faces. <laughs> okay. According to Mark Michael Epstein. <laughs> yeah. It's the symbol it's of the, the cherubim. It's a symbol of the cherubim, the
1: winged, the winged creatures. Can I ask you a question? Are you all distracted by the fact that this bird is wearing a hat? No, you didn't notice that. All you noticed was the beak. What's the hat? The Jewish hat. It's the Jew hat. Uh-huh. When the Jews of Germany, when the Jews of Ashkenaz imagine what a Jew is supposed to look like, they imagine a Jew with a hat. A Jew who has to wear the Jew hat. Okay? That's a really important, that's really significant. I have. And I'm happy for anyone to email me I'm happy to send you images Because they're beautiful I have a, a Chinese Haggadah I have a Spanish Haggadah And you see all this gorgeous color That's used in a Spanish Haggadah Which is reflective of the art of the time I mean it's unbelievable stuff But let's go into content a little bit Okay? Let's go into content Let's take a look at I don't know Let's, let's skip Seder night for a minute And let's think a little bit about The whole Passover experience the whole Passover experience, I would imagine, is a little strange if you're living in... Okay, let's do this. If you're living in 15th century Spain, you're a Jew in 15th century Spain, Passover is going to be a little strange for you. Why might you say? Chances are you're not a Jew anymore, right? Chances are you're a converso, or the negative... Uh, slur that was used is Marano Which is from the word pig It actually might be from a, a number of different words One word actually might fr- be from the Hebrew Mar-eit-ayin The way it looks In other words you look like you're practicing another faith On the outside but truly You're still practicing your own on the inside But either way the Moranos, How are they going to do Passover What is that going to look like Can somebody read number 6 on page 3 please and, you know, we're all friends here. No one's going to mind your reading style.
2: Anyone? Yes, please. What's your name? Faith. Thanks, Faith. Okay, do you want me to start with the title? The um, sure. Dessert, Passover, Chaim, Yeah, let's Easter,
1: give him Passover, some credit. The
2: Goodman Passover Anthology. Yeah. In the Goodman patho- Passover Anthology, they reckoned the Jewish holidays by the calendar in general use, applying the Jewish days to the secular months. Thus they observed Yom Kippur on the 10th day after the new moon of September and Pesach as the full moon of March.
1: Could you imagine? Could you imagine? You know how everybody says, when's Day of Atonement this year? What do you mean? Same day as it is every year, the 10th of September. (laughs) What? When's Passover this year? Same time as always, the 15th of April. (laughs) Okay, but that's what they did. Okay, let's go on.
2: When the spies of the Inquisition discovered these observances, the Muranos of Spain advanced the dates of the festival, advanced the dates of the festivals, (laughs) observing Yom Kippur on the 11th day and celebrating the Seder on a Pesach evening that came 16 days after the appearance of the new moon of March. Unbelievable, they even had to
1: change the number, right? They even had to change the number, okay?
2: On this 16th day, they would bake their matzah. On the two preceding days, which according to their curious Jewish secular calendar were really Pesach, they ate neither bread nor matzah. In the evening, they observed a secret Seder in their homes eating an entire roast sheep, all the participants wearing their traveling shoes and bearing staves in their hands. There were even Muranos, those of Menigo, who followed the old biblical injunction to smear the blood of the sheep on their doorposts. One noteworthy custom grew up among these moranos, the custom of beating the waters of a stream with willow branches, which they interpreted as a reminder of the separating of the waters of the Red Sea.
1: I love that one noteworthy custom came out of that. To me, that entire thing is a noteworthy custom. I mean, that's absolutely wild. They changed the date of Passover so that they could keep it, and then... To the full, and then when it was their date of Passover, which they had now changed to another date of Passover, they wouldn't eat matzah and they wouldn't eat bread because they didn't want to break their day of Passover, which was not the Jewish calendar day of Passover. It's so fascinating things would happen. But what comes out of this is actually, if you look at number seven, pan de semita, Semitic bread is Passover bread made and eaten by the first uh, by first by the Jews in pre-acquisition of Spain, and later on by Mexicans and Mexican Americans along the Texas border. Note there are some historians who believe that the entire Caucasian population of, Mexicanism, of Mexico is of Jewish origin, having escaped the Inquisition, obviously I think that's a bit much, and fled to what is now Mexico. In the remote villages of Mexico, many peasants observed Jewish traditions and customs without knowing the what or the why of their practice. Pan de Semita is always eaten around Passover season, even when families don't understand their Jewish connection. It is always unleavened and is made by combining two cups of flour and one, this is in case you need the pan de Semita recipe, one cup of, of water, a few tablespoons of olive oil and baked unleavened. Mexicans say that pork lard is prohibited, hence the name Semitic. Only olive oil may be used. The same recipe is used in Calabria, uh, the deep south of Italy and is called da-da-da. Okay? I don't speak Italian. Okay, so interesting. Pande Semita. These things that sort of come at us. But what about actually at the Seder itself? Let's take a look at what the Jews of Russia used to do. Number eight. Towards evening, the Caucasian Jews put on what they called liberty clothes, having wide loose sleeves. We might call that loose fit. Into their belts they stick a short spear or dagger and some even put their pistols there and then go to the synagogue to chant and pray. All year the women are kept confined in their rooms and are never seen with uncovered faces in public. But on the nights of Passover, they come to the Seder with their faces uncovered. Adorned with golden earrings and costly rings of sapphires and diamonds, around their necks they have gold and silver beads strung on a blue thread, and on their loins they wear belts made of silver chains. While reading the paragraph beginning with every person in every generation, right, must recall themselves as though they left Egypt, The young fellows go into a separate room, select one whom they dress in torn clothes, put a sack on his shoulders, give him a thick stick in his hand and send him outside. After a short interval, a loud knocking on the door is heard. Someone is asking for permission to enter and participate in the seder service. Who are you? I am a Jew and I desire to celebrate with you. How can we believe that you are a Jew? I wear a Talit Katan fringes. This is not sufficient proof. Give us some other sign. Then my peyote, side locks, will prove what I say. Even this is not sufficient. It is not yet the real proof. He becomes angry and excited, sorry for the exited, and excited and begins knocking with this heavy stick on the door, right? This whole thing, spontaneous anger that he's going to suggest. And this is so ironic. If you are really a Jew, why do you arrive so late? (laughs) What do you mean? That's the proof. That's the proof, right? Obviously, Jews of the Caucasus were a little bit different than, you know, the Jews that you and I know. You see, I have just come from Jerusalem, the holy city. It is a very long distance from here, and the roads are full of danger at every pace and step. Our enemies lie in wait for us and are always in our way. I was unable to come to you before the festival. And then he starts to weep and a deadly silence prevails. Of course, all spontaneous, every year. Everybody's eyes are now riveted on the door, when at a given sign from a learned man, somebody opens it. With joyous laughter, they surround the stranger, and the newcomer gives them hearty greetings from Jerusalem. He informs them that there are signs pointing out that the redeemer will soon come and destroy the iron wall that separates them from the holy city. Wow. This is a group of people that really wants to be redeemed. Right? This is a group of people that to them the Seder means messianic times. Right? They really want to be redeemed. They don't like where they are. It's not just freed from Egyptian slavery and we're doing okay. They turn in every generation a person has to see themselves as though they're freed into in every generation a person has to see themselves as though the redemption is coming in a minute. Right? It's very different. It's very different. Now granted, of course, in the Haggadah there are references to some eschatological dream of what the end of days will look like, et cetera, et cetera, but this is the portion where it's you imagine yourself in the Seder and what actually happens to you is supposed to just be I'm freed from slavery, right? But that's not what they imagine, right? That's not what they imagine, okay? I wanna show you a few more quick ones and then move to some things that I hope, I mean, they're a little heavy, but I think they're pretty beautiful the Seder. The Seder plate in southern Italy, Sicily and Morocco, number nine. Okay. The Seder plate is brought to oh, somebody want to read. Number nine? On page
2: five. Cispartic okay. so and the Nazi Jews, what's the difference? The Seder plate in southern Italy, Sicily and Morocco, the Seder plate was brought to the Seder table with great ceremony. It would be covered with a beautiful scarf and the family would sing as the plate arrives at the table. Before it was set down, the Seder plate would be placed on a child's head, and rotated for everyone to see.
1: Right, You're listening to that, and that doesn't sound like it's trying to augment anything in the Haggadah. It sounds like there must have been some sort of custom of scarves and beautifying and singing when things come out. Right? Meaning, why is it that when you go to a Polish Seder, you're not going to find people singing and putting out scarves when the Seder plate comes out? Not because this one's following the law and this one's not following the law. It's just this is the custom. This is what they're like. I want to show you one more thing that actually happens after Passover. It's not the Seder, it happens after Passover. Let's take a look on page six. On page six, Lucky Charms, number 12, the Maimuna. Okay? Maimuna. Celebration held by all Maghrebi Jews and many Eastern communities at the end of the last day of Passover which according to tradition is the anniversary of the death of Maimonides' father, Maimon, the son of Joseph, Ben Joseph, who lived for a time in Fez. In every home, tables are set with food and drinks having a symbolic significance, varying according to local customs. These include fresh pitchers of sweet milk, garlands of leaves and flowers, branches of fig trees, and ears of wheat. Usually a live fish, symbol of fertility, is placed on the table swimming in a bowl. The menu includes lettuce leaves dipped in honey, buttermilk, and pancakes spread with butter and honey. There is a lucky dip, a bowl of flour in which golden objects are placed. In some places, a plate of flour is set on the table with five eggs and five beans and dates set in it. In Oran, vessels And by in Oran, I mean in Iran. Vessels of silver. Oran is an old friend of mine, but Iran. In Iran, vessels of silver and gold are included in the table decoration. On this night, people eat only dairy foods and wafers made of fried dough resembling pancakes, known as muflita. No meat is to be consumed. The Jews visit each other, taking gifts of food. On the day, no, that was the end of Passover who here has that kind of energy at the end of Passover? <laughs> You're now going to bring out all your gold. And so, Are you joking me? I thought we did that for the Seder night. Okay, so they do this whole party, and then on the day following the holiday, the actual day of Maimuna, people go out to the fields, cemeteries, or the beaches, and organize large social gatherings. In modern Israel, Jews of Moroccan extraction celebrate the day after Passover with communal outings and picnics, and a central gathering is held in Jerusalem. The exact meaning of the word Maimuna is unknown, a suggestion that it is connected with the name of Maimunah, King of the Jinns, which is the demons, has been questioned by scholars in an article in Tarbitz why Einhorn quotes new sources to support his contention that the name of Maimuna is in fact linked with the Jinns. Why do we care about that? The reason why we care about that is this was not just done to be social, this was done for good luck. Take a look at number thirteen. 13. <clears throat> In Asia, oh, anybody here, by the way, have um, after Passover or after the Seder, they have kind of crumbs, like matzah crumbs sitting around their house? Mm -hmm. Save them. Save them. You'll see why. Save them. In Asia, Iran, North Africa, and Greece, Jews kept a piece of the afikomen in their pockets or houses for good luck during the year, sometimes making a small hole in it so it could be hung like an amulet. Keeping the remains of the apikomen in rice, flour, and salt was thought by the Jews of Kurdistan to protect them against the depletion of these staples. The Moroccans in particular believed that the matzah had the power to safeguard them during ocean travel and would throw it into the water to calm it in a storm. They based the superstition on an appropriate verse from Psalms 54.9, whose first letters in Hebrew spell the word matzah. Some believe that it kept for seven years If kept for seven years It could stop floods Others attributed to it the capacity to stop fire And when held in hand to protect a woman and infant During childbirth You saved that matzah right? It's fascinating because what they did Is they brought Passover into the rest of their year They brought Passover into the rest of their year Don't throw away your matzah Don't forget what we just went through It's good luck Keep it And what's interesting about this is that if you look at many different cultures, you find that they try to extend Passover in one direction or another. So there are North African cultures that start preparing for Passover right after, you're not even going to guess it. Right after Passover would be, that would be rough. But let's try, I'll give you a little more time than that. Hanukkah. Right after Hanukkah. Okay? Wow. Wow right after Hanukkah. They're trying to bring Passover into the rest of the year. And here you're going in the opposite direction, trying not to just lose that regal experience of being freed and just walk away from it. No, take it with you in some way. So I'm not interested in the superstition, I'm interested in what's under the superstition, what's behind the superstition, what's behind the custom, what's under the custom, what is it trying to teach us? So now I want to share with you something that I think is really important, which is in Jewish life today, text seems to really matter. Right? It seems to really matter. Ah, we respect our rabbi. Right? Rabbi, you tell me this is true? We respect our rabbi because he knows the text. He knows the information. Right? Mm -hmm. We respect our rabbi because she can really read that story in the Talmud and explain to us what the, what the background is and the, what undergirds it, right? Text. And by the way, the, the circles in which, from which I come, modern orthodox circles, there's a real sort of flight to text, which is, okay, I, I don't care what my parents did when I grew up, I care what this text from the 16th century says I'm supposed to do. Text is really important. But the problem is that sometimes text comes at the expense of custom, and experience, and tradition. And I see the Cedar Night as a reminder about how important your family's traditions are. How important each and every person at the Cedar is. You don't just have to be the person who knows the text in order to be a significant person around the table. You're a person carrying on the minhag, the custom, the tradition, the lived experience. It's kind of like when I was a freshman in college, I would have on my door, you know, my, my, what can I say? I'd spent a gap year in Israel and I was very Zionistic and I really just wanted to be reminded of Israel all the time. Like I was on Columbia campus. You think I wasn't reminded of Israel enough at the time, but I, you know, I was, I was, I need to feel that connection, whatever it was. So my roommate and I, we had something on our door that said, next year in Jerusalem, right? L'shana haba b'yerushalayim, and we meant it sort of in a way of, we'd like to get back to Israel at some point. So I find our sweet mate, Irene, is writing on our board, and she's writing in like little letters on the bottom of the board, and not erasing the next year in Jerusalem, Said Irene, you well, don't have to write in these little letters, like we have this take up the whole board just to erase the board. She said, I thought I wasn't supposed to erase it because it was sitting up there, right? I thought I wasn't supposed to erase it. So that is fascinating because what she showed me there is she said, traditions are powerful. Whatever your tradition, your experience, whatever you need, it's powerful. It doesn't just have to be a rule, right, in order for it to be powerful to you. And she respected that. And we talked about it. We said, no, you, don't really, you can really, you know, you can erase it. And there went that. Once she erased it, <laughs> that was the end of that. But it's, I, I think there's something about the Seder that is different from every other holiday. The text of the Haggadah itself is made by people having experiences. And the customs that you bring to it add that much more. So with that, I want to share with you a reading that I do at my Seder every year. Um, Which is from a personal hero of mine And my original dissertation advisor His name is Professor David Weiss Halivni Has anybody ever heard of him? So he is, I got got a hand He is a um, very prominent Talmudist, Talmud scholar And has done a lot in the academic world of Talmud He is also a Holocaust survivor And um, growing up he was a very precocious young man shall we say he was what they called a gaon, a genius. They would travel him by horse and buggy from town to town to get tested by all the big rabbis in his memorization of Talmudic folios at the age of six and seven, literally, at the age of six and seven. He, unfortunately, was a teenager when he ended up getting sent to Gross Rosen. Um, he was, uh, didn't really know what to do with himself. And, well, let's read. He didn't really know what to do with himself. He basically tried to continue to live in the Talmud and in Jewish texts. Okay, he didn't just had to keep himself out of his day to day in concentration camp and hard labor and tried to ignore what he saw. So let's take a look at number two, David Weiss Halivni, the book in the sword. This is his autobiography, and I really do read it at every Passover because I think that it's. Um, It's very important when we have the opportunity to have Passover Seder, and especially if we can have family and friends around, to appreciate and to stand for those who couldn't. And for those who can't, but for those who couldn't. Here's a story. He's in Gross Rosen. He's doing hard labor. And he looks up and he sees that one of his taskmasters is eating a sandwich. Okay, It's Passover. He's eating a sandwich dripping with grease The sandwich wrapper catches Professor Halivni's attention okay? The sandwich wrapper His sandwich was wrapped in a page of Orach Chaim A volume of the Shulchan Aruch, Pesel Balaban's edition Shulchan Aruch, one of the most foremost codes of law In, in Jewish historical memory And this man is eating a sandwich Wrapped in a page of Shulchan Aruch Okay, that's his sandwich wrap The Balabans began publishing the Shulchan Aruch The Jewish Code of Law in Lemberg in 1839 The first publisher was Abraham Balaban And after his death he was succeeded by his widow Pessel. Pessel's edition of the Shulchan Aruch was the best It had all the commentaries including that of Rabbi Shlomo Kluger As a child of a poor but scholarly home I had always wanted to have her edition we had a Shulchan Aruch, but it wasn't Pesel's. Ours was also old and torn. It was my ambition as a child to own a Vilna shas, a complete set of all of the Talmud's volumes. Pessels Shulchan Aruch and a set of Rambam's, Maimonides, a complete set of Maimonides' major legal writings. Here, of all places, in the shadows of the tunnel, under the threatening gaze of the German, a page of the Shulchan Aruch with fatty spots all over it met my eyes. The page was from The Laws of Passover. Upon seeing this wrapper, I instinctively fell at the feet of the guard without even realizing why. The mere letters propelled me. With tears in my eyes, I implored him to give me this blettle, this page. For a while, he didn't know what was happening. He thought I was suffering from epilepsy. He immediately put his hand to his revolver, the usual reaction to an unknown situation. But then he understood. This was, I explained to him, a page from a book I had studied at home. Please, I sobbed, give it to me as a souvenir. He gave me the bletel and I took it back to the camp. On the Sundays we had off, we now had not only oral Torah but written Torah as well. The bletel became a visible symbol of a connection between the camp and the activities of Jews throughout history. The bletel became a rallying point. We looked forward to studying it whenever we had free time, more so even than to the phylacteries. It was the blettle, parts of which had to be deciphered because the Greece had made some letters illegible that summoned our attention. Most of, who came, most of those who came to listen didn't understand the subject matter, but that was irrelevant. They all perceived the symbolic significance of the blettle. I think you can understand why I would read this at my Seder every year. A few years ago, the um, who hosted this? Sotheby's hosted a huge collection of Jewish archival material, manuscripts, even printed edition, but a lot, many manuscripts. And I'm walking through Sotheby's, and this is, you know, imagine the biggest Jewish event in Irvine, right? What's the biggest Jewish event in Irvine?
2: Israel Israel
1: Fair. Perfect. Imagine the Israel Fair times 20 literally, you're going to see everybody you ever knew, somebody who went to camp with somebody, somebody who dated your grandkid, everybody, everybody everybody. So a guy walks over to me, and a member of my synagogue and he says, Alana, you have to see this. You have to see this. And I, I mean, I, you're, you have to see everything there. Okay? It, it's unbelievable. 12th century they have a, a Samaritan Torah scroll. I mean, it's just wild stuff. Stuff that I've never seen, never thought about. And he brings me over to a Haggadah. And he says to me, look at that. And I'm looking at it, oh, it looks so special to me. He says, they have the same wine stains as we do on our Haggadah. <laughs> the same wine stains as we do on our Haggadah. So that's what I would say is why I read this at my seder every year. Because again, the seder is not about the text. The seder is about the, the life, the experience, the connecting with the past generations, the connecting with the future generations, and the customs really bring that out. Do we have time for one more or no? Way, sure. We have time for one more okay oh we have time we have time we're good we 're good. anybody have any questions by the way yeah. if we have time okay, Tom
2: um, in number three uh, that you pointed out, it looks to me like uh, are those just small people? I thought they're children and they all have beards.
1: <laughs> ah, so that's also kind of an interesting thing. In, um, in the art that comes out of India, often children are portrayed as little adults. Children are portrayed as little adults, which, by the way, was a more medieval kind of way of doing things, but yes, they have, they're little people and they have beards. Another suggestion that people have made is that that's actually supposed to be the help. So they're portrayed as smaller. You can see why I might like the first one better than the second one. Any other questions? Okay, so we have time for one more. That's fabulous. This is kind of a funny one. It doesn't fit into... It doesn't really fit into either or, but it kind of gives you a sense of how things happen, how customs accrue. Take a look at page three, okay? Number five. There was a phenomenon of Jews converting out of Judaism, right? Especially 16th, 17th, uh, 18th centuries actually, of Jews converting out of Judaism for various different reasons, but in the 18th century it was more uh, political and economic sanctions, you know, just making it difficult to live as a Jew. And one of the things that Jews who converted out would do is they would write tell-all books about the Jewish community, okay? So I just want you to see what's included in a tell-all book about Judaism. The Book of Religion, Ceremonies Number Five, and Prayers of the Jews by the Apostate, right? That's how they referred uh, to somebody who converted out, Gamliel ben Pidatsur, which is a pen name, okay? In the middle of the table, this is a description of a Passover Seder. In the middle of the table stands a large dish covered with a napkin. On that napkin lays a Passover cake, which cake is called. What is a suffake? In English, a doubtful one. Suffake. A doubt. Okay, A doubt. The cake is covered with a napkin and on the napkin lays a second cake. That cake too is covered with a napkin and on the napkin lays a third cake. That cake too is covered with a napkin and on the napkin lays a fourth cake. Now, I don't know how many matzahs. Now, I'm not asking you how many matzah boxes you have at the table because that's a whole different issue. But... When I look at my plate of matzahs, how many matzahs am I going to have on that, t- uh, just on that one plate that's sitting in front of me? Three. Mm-hmm. So we you're have- saying more than three because...
2: No, three.
1: You're saying three, yes. okay, three.
2: We now have four.
1: You have four, wine.
2: For the Russians.
1: Ah, you do, beautiful. Okay, what else? Three. Anybody here have two? So the most common customs you're going to find are two and three. Right, So four is making a comeback. Right, Four is making a comeback. So interestingly enough, so they have four. Well, it's also kind of weird because I would have many more than four anyway because there should be maybe four in front of everybody. Really, it's here. It sounds like you have four just in the middle of the table and that's it. So if you look at Rabbi Yaakov Reischer, okay, who's writing at the end of the 17th century, and I apologize again, this five aleph right underneath, it's not translated, but I'll say it in English. So Rabbi Yaakov Reicher actually writes about this this custom of having four matzahs at the Seder. He says, and in these areas, in these countries, they make four matzahs from the dough. And they call the fourth matzah sfeika, which is safek, the doubtful one. Because if something happens with one of the other three matzahs, you have that fourth one to fill in. Amazing. What does that mean about how many matzahs they had at the table in total? Sounds like that's it. Right? They had, talk about poor man's bread. They had four matzahs. That's it. Right? Even though you really are only supposed to have three, which is supposed to be parallel to back in the day in temple times giving a Thanksgiving offering and having three loaves there. Well, it's okay because they call it safeik, doubtful, that's okay. So if you walked into somebody's house and you saw that there were four matzahs on the table, I mean you might be happy if there were only four matzahs on the table because it means not everybody's going to have to eat so much matzah, right? But the point is here, this, this is a tell-all book, right? This Gamliel Ben-Pedatzur, this is a tell-all book. What do Jews do at the Seder? They add a matzah just in case one matzah breaks. Wow, that's, that's wild stuff. Right, that's wild stuff So that's the kind of custom that accrued because of need right, They clearly only had it, whatever it was Enough flour, enough money, whatever the resources they needed They didn't have enough for everybody to have as much matzah as they wanted So if you're only going to have three matzahs If one of them broke, then it's not so nice to use a half a matzah Or a three quarters of a matzah So let's have an extra one there just in case So that's kind of a different way that a custom comes into practice as opposed to this ideological of I want to be redeemed and therefore I look at the redemption of the Seder as messianic times or as opposed to say we are Muranos or Conversos so this is how we do our Seder and we do this Pande Semita kind of stuff this is a little bit different but clearly arose in very particular circumstances very uh, contextual circumstances So just so you know what you're walking away with at least from my end of things What I hope you're walking away with Is just a a thought of what you might include in your Seder What you might add to your Seder And it doesn't have to be on this page It might be, you know, I really want to You know, I've been meaning to put that orange on the Seder plate Right? I'm going to do that this year I've been meaning to put that, I don't know Potato skin peels uh, Potato uh, uh, peels on the Seder plate Which is commemorative of Holocaust victims There are so many new things that are happening But I Hope that people leave with a sense of I want to be active about my Passover Seder, I want to bring something that Means something to me, I want to bring my picture of Charlton Heston, right, but Very simply, very briefly the, uh, You can borrow My picture of Charlton, I'll make you a copy The, the, the uh, Very simply though Very linearly, what I'm leaving you with Is the following, okay, what I'm leaving you with Is the following, in a world That is very text Interested and, not, and is getting less experiential, by the way, by the day because of the internet, is getting less experiential by the day the Haggadah brings us away from text and into Jewish experience and therefore the customs that arose such as hitting each other with scallions in order to make live either the beatings or to make lie, bring to life The idea that we were complainers And we should stop complaining God forbid <laughs> right? We should stop complaining Or breaking the matzah And making it symbolic of Going through the sea Of God breaking the sea Or putting water on your floor Or putting bricks in your charoset The idea is it's not just about the text It's about your experience that night What's your experience? I ate, I ate a piece of brick That that was my experience. I saw the little creepy crawlers on my table. That was my experience. I drank from the cup of Pharaoh. That was my experience. That's what you want to take away. Then beyond that, it's not just how you experience that night. It's how do other people over time, how have they brought customs into it? How have they brought their unique situation into it? So if you are a Murano, what you brought to it is a whole different calendar. If you are a Jew of the Caucasus, what you brought to it is severe messianic yearnings. If you are a Jew in Italy, what you brought to it is some real Italian style. Some singing, some scars. If you're Ethiopian, by the way, what you brought to it is you broke all your old plates and you made new plates for Passover. Okay? So it's connecting us not just to how we feel at the Seder, but what have other people done throughout history at the Seder and what has that meant to them? And the third piece that I'm leaving you with is the people who could not have a Seder. And being at the Seder and somehow commemorating those people. And I don't know who those people are for you. And for different people, they're different people. For me, it's victims of the Holocaust. I happen to have, I think because of Professor Halivni, I happen to have a real need in my heart when I am at a Passover Seder, I cannot leave out those who could not be redeemed. I cannot leave out those who could not be redeemed. But for people around this room, it might be Aunt So-and-so who's not making it to this year's Seder. It might be a friend who is lost for whatever lost means. Ill, mentally ill, physically ill, whatever lost means. But bringing people to the Seder who aren't naturally there. So I hope that you have a very proactive Passover, and a beautiful Passover, and a redemptive Passover. Happy holiday to you, all. Thank you.